Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. My name is David, and uh, I'm the pastor here at Redeemer. So glad to have you guys join us this morning on this, uh, this interesting weather, cool Texas. I appreciate it very much, actually. I'm very glad. I want this as long as possible. I'm sure many of you guys do too. Uh, today, we continue on in the second week of our series called Creed. And this is a study of the Apostles' Creed. And if you missed last week, I started this whole series by, by pointing out the fact that all, all kinds of us come from all kinds of different places when we think about and try to understand and, and approach the Creed. Some of us are really excited about a series on the Apostles' Creed. We've been wanting to talk about this for a while. We come from a tradition where it's known. Some of us uh, are, are concerned about a series on the Apostles' Creed, thinking that it's not directly studying the Bible, and instead uh, this is some part of church tradition that, that may, they may have been taught doesn't have tremendous value. Others of us uh, may not know what, uh, what the Apostles' Creed even is, right? And you're thinking about this band that I mentioned last week from the 90s that lots of us grew up on that uh, sang, should have been there on a Sunday morning, banging. I know you guys listened to Creed. I did. I liked Creed. That was a good band. Not everybody feels the same way. But uh, I, I just want to say, wherever you are, you're going to be all right. And, uh, and I think all of us are going to glean a lot from this study, because all this is, these next eight weeks, is a study of the core essential doctrines of Christian faith that are all based in the Scripture and all things that the church has upheld for the last 2,000 years as, as part of the core truth of, of what we believe. And I have two goals in this series, two very simple goals. One, I want you to know better what, you're, what you believe. If you're a Christian, uh, this, this, is the core, this is the core of what, what you actually believe about God and Jesus and what happened uh, in the world and the story of redemption. And I think as we work through this piece by piece, you're going to understand things on a deeper level individually. And then what will also happen is that pieces will connect to one another. The, the puzzle will become, the picture in the puzzle will become clearer, and, and it'll really grow your understanding. Um, it, it, I think what'll happen then is when you begin to understand God and the Christian story better, it's the second goal that I have is that you would love God more. I think uh, when you know who God is, you're going to, to, to love God that much better. When you know God rightly, you're going to love God a lot more richly. And th those are the two goals. I'm praying those things will happen for you guys during these next few weeks. Okay, uh, today's message is titled Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to tackle the concept of the Trinity in the Apostles' Creed and in the Bible. Before we do that, let's go ahead and, and bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I, I thank you for these people and this time and um, just the opportunity to, to spend this morning to try to understand who you are better, Lord. And, and I just pray as we do that in what is not an easy concept to grasp, um, Lord, little bits and pieces of this by the power of your spirit would, would anchor themselves in us and we, we would better understand who you are and what you've done and how you relate to us in, in your Trinitarian nature, Lord. And, uh, I just pray that um, eyes of our, our hearts would be open and our minds would be ready to learn. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. All right. 
Uh, 1800s, there was a movement in the United States called the Second Great Awakening. I, thought, I think many of us studied it in school. And part of that movement uh, was made up a lot of sub-movements, one called the Restoration Movement, the Restorationists. Some of you guys may have come from church traditions in the Restoration Movement, but the core idea uh, behind this, this movement was summed up in something that I still hear from time to time today in, in this little slogan that was, that was this, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And uh, what I want to say is part of that saying I've grown to very much appreciate. No creed but Christ is this idea that Jesus should be at the very center of our faith, right? And that, that, is, that is correct. Christianity is based on the person of Christ. Jesus is at the center. It's Jesus' life and teachings and his death and his resurrection on which everything else in the Christian story pivots. Without Jesus, not a single one of us would be sitting in this room right here and right now. Jesus is at the center. And any time Christian traditions have taken anything and put something else in, in the center, most important position in Christian faith, they've run into trouble, which is part of what the restorationists were responsible Responding to originally. So that's good. I also appreciate this emphasis on no book but the Bible. What they're saying is that the highest authority for, for Christian faith is, is the, the, the Bible. It's the scriptures. And if Jesus is the center of Christian faith, the Bible is the way that we know who Jesus is. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are eyewitnesses accounts of, of of, of what, who Jesus was, what he did, what he said, that, that, that he died and rose again. And so the Bible, by which we understand who Jesus is, is the book for Christians. It's the authoritative book. And anytime anything else gets into an equal authoritative place in the Christian church, the church has run into trouble, which is also something that the early restorationists were, um, were responding to. But I, I, as much as I appreciate about this statement... I think it's important just to bring it up this morning because there are ways uh, when we're talking about the Apostles' Creed that we need to recognize that it falls short. Firstly, because no book, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible uh, is actually itself a creed. I don't know if you, if you guys uh, are, saw that right away, but, but if you were here last week, remember creed comes from this Latin term credo, which means very simply, I believe. So if you were saying, I believe there is no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ, you were basically saying, this is my creed. It's, it's kind of like saying, I don't like ice cream while eating uh, frozen custard, right? Like, like it's, it's a self-defeating statement. It, it, it's, it, it's, I, I appreciate the intent of it. It's, it's a minimalistic approach, but... but um, it's a creed nonetheless, and so you can't really avoid having creeds. They're inescapable. Secondly, if it is your belief that there is no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, one of the challenges that you have then is to actually explain what you mean by that, okay? You have to go and, and explain to people, well, who was Jesus, right? What did he do? Why did it matter? Was, was Jesus God? Was he fully God? Was he fully man? And just, just to bear down a little bit here, uh, do you realize that um, it, Muslims actually w have a very high view of Jesus? 
They actually believed that he was sent by God. They believed that he was a prophet. They even believed that he died on the cross. They, they, they think very highly of Jesus, but clearly, because Islam and Christianity are different religions, right, there are some differences in our understanding of who Jesus was. And, and no creed but Christ doesn't tell us enough to clarify those differences. Uh, and, and so what has to happen when you have a belief about somebody or something like Jesus is you have to further explain what you believe and why. And no creed but Christ wouldn't give enough detail to uh, differentiate a, a Muslim belief versus a Christian belief. The Apostles' Creed, however, does. All I'm trying to say is that whatever you believe, you have to clarify your belief. And the moment you start to clarify what you believe, you are going to build a more significant statement of what you believe, a creed. We have built what we consider the Apostles' Creed. Just Jesus and the Bible are very good intentions and directions, but they need to be explained further. Now, why did I spend all that time in history bringing all that up it's actually uh, very relevant to our conversation this morning. We are going to talk about the Trinity. We are going to talk about a Christian belief that is something that is summarized and clarified and has been considered part of the right core essential Christian doctrine for the last 2,000 years, right? So this is at the center of Christian faith. Um, and actually, one of the evidences that it's been at the center of Christian faith is the Apostles' Creed itself. You may uh, have seen this, but do you realize that the Apostles' Creed, when it was put together, uh, has a Trinitarian structure? Um, I'll show you this on the slide. I underlined it, but it is in, in three parts. I believe in God and in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's the full of the Apostles' Creed, and under each heading, there are different beliefs that apply to each person of the Trinity, right? And, um, and, and so the Apostles' Creed, right from the get-go in Christianity, upheld a Trinitarian understanding of who God is. But, but, but this is the really, really interesting thing. The actual word Trinity, do you see it in that Apostles' Creed there at all? No. Do you also know that nowhere in the Bible is the word Trinity ever once used? Not, not once. Why is that? Because it's a summarized, clarifying understanding of who we believe God to be as God has been revealed in the Bible. As God has revealed God's self to us, we have had to put it together to make sense of it, to extrapolate it out. And the best idea that we have been able to come up with is that God is Trinitarian. And what that means is that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another way that you could say that is God is one in essence and three in person. Okay, that there is a tri-unity in God, a trinity. This is what Christians have always believed about the nature of who God is. Okay, so, so first thing that I want to say as we start to pick this apart is, is, is kind of what Thea said. The Trinity is really hard to understand. Uh, just this last week, I was sitting down with my, my two oldest boys who were up here, and uh, we, were, we were actually doing our nighttime uh, Bible reading, and they started grilling me on the Trinity. 
<laughs> they, uh, yeah, a, a second grader and a kindergartner, and honestly, they were not buying it. Um, Jesse was like, Dad, uh, Jesus cannot be man and cannot be God. That's 100% plus 100%. He's 200%. Nobody can be 200%, Dad, right? And then, and then his little brother Jeremiah chimed in and said, Yeah, Dad, and I don't know how the Holy Spirit can be God too. One plus one plus one equals... Not one, like right, like the kids said. Not it equals three, Dad. You don't know what you're talking about, Dad, right? And so I, I just uh, I, I want to say if your kids ever struggle to uh, to to be fully on board with your efforts at passing down your faith, know that the the pastor is in the same boat with you. That sometimes uh, we struggle with this abstract stuff at our house. Thankfully, uh, they will get better at abstract thinking and learn multiplication, uh, which, which will help. But, but um, that, that's, that's a very normal thing. These are not uh, things that we simply get that are, that are self-evident. And, and know also, if you're an adult and you're struggling to understand the Trinitarian nature of God, like, you're in good company, there are, are some incredible, and have been for many years, incredible committed followers of Jesus who have done incredible things because of their faith, who have self-admittedly struggled with the concept and understanding the Trinity o- over the years. I remember my um, systematic theology professor that, that I learned from in seminary um, saying at the beginning of our, our, our number of weeks on the Trinity, uh, if, if at the end of this, this feels like still the least accessible doctrine in all of Christian faith and is just a little bit more clear than mud, right, you're, you're probably on the right track, right? He said, he said, that's how it is still for me, and I teach this stuff. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I want to point out that actually, um, in some ways, it, it should be like that. Um, you, you know, when you step back and think about what we're trying to do, shouldn't it be really difficult to fully wrap our minds around the nature of God, right? Like, that's actually very logical. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but, but if there is an infinite, eternal God, and we are finite, time-bound beings, and we're trying to wrap our minds, our finite God, minds, around an infinite God, we're going to struggle with that by the very logical nature of what we're trying to do. It makes sense that we would struggle to fully understand who God is. That's a very logical thing. Um, but, but it isn't to say also that we cannot make sense, any sense at all, of the Trinity or that God hasn't given us uh, direction and clues and analogies and metaphors that can help us get on the right track, right? I've, I think people over the centuries have found metaphors and analogies very helpful in beginning to understand how God can be one and three, three and one. Here's one that I found helpful, the atom. The atom can actually help us understand the nature of God. I was terrible in chemistry, um, but I know enough to, 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 to have learned that an atom, if you break it down to its most essential parts, are protons, n- neutrons, and electrons. Chemists, did I, did I get it right? Yeah? Good. Good. We got our chemist over there. Good. And, um, and protons, neutrons, and electrons all make up a single atom of one particular kind, like an oxygen atom, right? And, and what's interesting about those is they're all bound together, and if you pull any one of those apart, 
uh, suddenly that atom doesn't exist in the same form anymore. You, you have to have them in that form as they are, all three of those parts, to have oxygen. And so here in nature, we have one thing that is indivisible from what it exists uh, that's different from another and it's in its most um, smallest makeup, but also the same. It's one oxygen atom. It's that, that, that's on the right track to help us understand how there can be one God in three parts uh, that, that, that are different but all the same. Here's another, another analogy I found helpful over the years, and it actually helped my boys the other night. You and me, the, a, a human being, is actually a helpful analogy in understanding the, the Trinity. You are not just a body. You are not just a brain. If you believe that there is more than the material in the world, you believe that, that you're also a spirit, that there's a spiritual aspect to who you are. And all three of those things, body, mind, and, and, and spirit, make you you right? You, you need all three of those components to be you. And so here is another example of three things that are all interconnected that are different from one another but come together to make David or Mary Lee or Shannon, right? That's another example of three and one, one and three. And those are, are good ways to get us on track and beginning to understand uh, the Trinitarian nature of God. But I want to point out uh, like all analogies for anything, if you press on these analogies too hard, you're actually going to not fully understand um, the Trinity. You're, you're going to push it to its limits, and the Trin Trinity is a bigger understanding of that than, than those analogies will let you know. But I, I don't want you to just take my word for that. Um, here are some simple-minded um, Irish folk who do a great job explaining it. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him, exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. 
partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. So what do you guys do for a living? Well, we come from a long line of snake farmers, Patrick, but truth be told, business has been real bad lately. Oh, yeah, about that. I hope y'all enjoyed that. Uh, what was the point of that video? Uh, it's The point was what I was trying to, to kind of communicate from the beginning. Analogies are helpful to get us on the right track, but as two simpleton Irishmen reminded us, they, uh, they break down if you press too hard on them. All analogies are like that, and that's especially even more true when it comes to the Trinity. Um, and, and, and here's what I, I really want to do is kind of flip the script on this and, and help you understand that what we're trying to do with the Trinity is not explain something that in some ways is, is beyond our, our ability to fully grasp. We're actually trying to, to solve the challenge of what we see in the scripture being communicated. Okay, so, so, so this is uh, the most helpful way I have found to describe uh, what we're doing with the Trinity. The Trinity is a solution to what we see in the Bible. The Trinity is a solution to what we understand God to be as God has revealed himself in the scripture. We do not believe in the Trinity because the Apostles' Creed says there is a Trinity. We do not believe in the Trinity because some church fathers a long time ago said, oh, this is what's true, and the church just accepted it. No, the reason that we believe there's a Trinity is because as God has revealed himself to us, and as we see it under the authority of Scripture— God appears to have a Trinitarian nature, that God is one in essence, but three in person. And, and, there, and actually, if you work through the scriptures, what you're going to see is that God in the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is presented as God. And uh, there's a fellow named J. Warner Wallace who kind of put some of those things together. Uh, and I just want to kind of work you through some of those scriptures so, so that you can see them, uh, wh where all three are stated, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all three are shown to have the same attribute, which is an attribute of God. So here's the first one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all shown in Scripture as the all-powerful creator. Uh, the first example of the Father 
comes from Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, and all of us are the work of our hands. So God creates. The father creates the son. All things came into being by him. We're speaking about Jesus here. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus is also involved in the creation, according to Scripture. Uh, The last one, the Holy Spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So right there it's stated that the Holy Spirit was part of the creation of who we are. All three, all-powerful creator in the Bible. All three having an attribute of God. Here's, here's another example. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all all-knowing. They're all presented as all-knowing in the Bible. If we go to the scriptures, please. Father, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. So God knows all things about us. Knows all things in general, actually, is what it's saying. Son, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. So it's saying of Jesus, Jesus knows all things. Jesus is all-knowing. The Holy Spirit, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. The Spirit, in a sense, knows all things, even the depths of God. The Spirit knows all All of the depths of God, the Spirit is all-knowing. So this is an attribute of God shown in all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Finally, uh, another one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all all all-present. Theological word is omnipresent. They're everywhere, at all times, aware of all things, right? But God will indeed dwell on the earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. So that verse is saying God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. Uh, the Son, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. So Jesus is with us always, always present. It's another attribute of God. Finally, the Holy Spirit. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Even there, your hand will lead me, and your hand will lay hold of me. I cannot, where can I go from your spirit. The spirit is always present, right? So this this is another attribute of God shown in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Finally, this is the, cl- the most clarifying one in the scripture. You know, all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are actually called God. They're referred to or inferred to as God. Grace to you and peace from our Father, and the, the, the adjective in front, God, not the adjective, the noun, God, our Father. So, so, so it's saying that God is a, is God the Father. In the beginning was the word of Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The statement about Jesus, those famous statements about Jesus in the entire Bible, Jesus was God, right? Lastly, the Holy Spirit. Uh, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Uh, Why is it that you have conceived, conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So in lying to the Holy Spirit... You were lying to God infers that God and the Holy Spirit are the same, that the Holy Spirit is God. Um, they're all called God, and there's other examples. Uh, and so this is what we see in Scripture. When it talks about the Spirit, when it talks about the Son, when it talks about the Father, all three are called God. And the very interesting thing is that there are instances when, actually there's a couple instances where all three of them exist at the same moment in time, uh, as distinct beings, and the example of that is really Jesus' baptism. Uh, Matthew three sixteen through 17, as soon as Jesus was baptized, 
he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. So this is a single moment. Jesus is coming out of the water. The son emerges from the water. The Holy Spirit descends from heaven, and God speaks. Three distinct persons doing three distinct things, and yet in the scriptures, they are all spoken of as God, right? So how do, how do you make sense of that? It's complex. It's hard to understand, but this is the best that the church has done in trying to understand it. God is Trinity. God is Trinitarian. There is one God, in essence, who, who exists as three persons, and that is the best we can do to understand what we see in Scripture and the way that God has revealed himself to us. And I'm not saying it's easy to understand, but I, I am saying this is, this is the best that we have. And I, I want to point out here, just to also flip this in the other direction, you know, the Trinity may be hard to understand, but it also actually uh, solves some problems that we may not even be aware that exist in the very nature of God. And, uh, and it's this, the Trinity actually solves the, the problem of how God can be loving. The Trinity is a solution to the question of love in the nature of God. Let, let me explain. You know, um, some of the, the, the religions that most vehemently oppose the Christian idea of God totally reject the idea of the Trinity. Islam actually is a good example of this. If you ever have a conversation with a Muslim, and I've gone down this road a number of times with Muslims, they'll say, you don't believe in, in one God, you believe in three gods. You believe in Jesus and a Holy Spirit and, 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 and God, like, like we believe in Allah. And, um, and, and that's an interesting argument. It's not quite what Christians believe, but this is how it's perceived. But the thing that's very interesting is that if God is a singular monolithic being, as, as God is in the Islamic perspective uh, of God, um, you really don't have an answer for the question of how God can be loving. Because for love to exist, to, to, there has to be a couple of pieces. There has to be a lover and a beloved, right? You, you have to have something to love, an object of your love, to give love to. Um, but if God existed before there was time, before you and I were ever created, uh, in the beginning was God, uh, as Muslims believe, as Christians believe, and, and God was not Trinitarian, who was God loving? So, so, so if God is singular, if God is monolithic, and he existed before time, and there was just God, only God, who is God loving? How could God be love if all there was was God? The, the reality is there's not a good answer to that question. And, 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 and while the Trinity may be hard to understand and present some challenges, do you realize that, that the Trinity answers the question of love in the very nature of God? Christians believe that God is love. 1 John 4, 8 says that very thing, that God is love. The only way that is possible in God's very nature is, is, is through the Trinity. It's through this incredible understanding of God, that God is, is one in essence and three persons. Because do you remember as Jesus rises up out of the water and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, what, what does the voice of God say? This is my Son whom I love, Right? Love is there in the very nature of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? 
All right, we got through the Trinity. Uh, I, I want to close today uh, by, by saying, if you have any further questions, I'm happy to continue conversation with you on this to try to explain it. There's certainly a lot more to talk about. But then let me also uh, challenge you. If you were here last week, you know that I gave you the Apostles' Creed Challenge. And what, what I'm wanting you to do is try to memorize the Apostles' Creed by the end of this series, from beginning to end. I believe in God the Father, to the life eternal, all three parts uh, of the Trinity in, in, in the Apostles' Creed. I, w- I want us to, to memorize it, and I really think you're going to benefit from doing that. I shared a story last week about how that can anchor your heart, and, um, and that's what we're aiming to do, is to, is to memorize the Creed so that we can say it. And then if you can throw up the slide, on the last week before school gets out, the week of May 20th, we're going to graduate. Uh, I challenge you to go on social media and to say it with the hashtag, we creed hard, right? This is, is going to be a fun thing. We're going to blitz uh, Facebook and Instagram with the creed. And uh, I'm, I, I, some people are already trying to do it. If you need to know, uh, have a reference point for the creed, today on the back of your bulletin, we put it on there. So you can take that home. That's the one that we're going to do on Sunday mornings. And uh, I'd really encourage you all to step up to the challenge. You're going to you're gonna like and appreciate that you did, and I, I know you guys can do it. Okay, let's go ahead and, and finish in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this chance to, to gather and to be together this morning. Um, I just uh, thank you that even in trying to tackle and understand things that are as challenging as this, that you also um, uh, come and, and reveal yourself to us through, through our working to understand in ways that we, we may not even be, be aware that, that your, um, your revelation becomes a richness in our faith. And I just pray that that would happen, that we would understand you as bigger and, and different than us, but at the same time see the beauty that you, you who created us and the whole entire world stepped into the universe and your son Jesus and, and through the power of your love and God the Father has given us the spirit so that we can walk by faith right here and right now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.